Welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, your host and CEO of Bregman Partners. This podcast is part of my mission to help you get massive traction on the things that matter most. With us today is Dan Ariely. He is one of my favorite authors of all time and has someone who's actually helped me personally uh, as I've uh, written. So I'm, I'm particularly appreciative of, of having Dan on the podcast. He's a professor of psychology and behavioral economics at Duke. He um, does such interesting experiments. I, I, you know, he sort of tortures children around uh, Halloween candy. He does experiments that I don't uh, even fully feel comfortable describing completely on the podcast, uh, but I love them and they're so interesting. He wrote the uh, Predictably Irrational, which I think is the best title I've heard of a book, is certainly in behavioral economics. Uh, he's also written The Upside of Irrationality, The Honest Truth About Dishonesty, Irrationally Yours, and the book we're here to talk about today, Payoff. The Hidden Logic That Shapes Our Motivations. He's smart. He's interesting. He does uh, interesting work. Dan, thank you so much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thank you for the, for the kind words. So payoff is about uh, motivation, right? The hidden logic that shapes our motivation. And I, I kind of wanted you to start with the, um, the research that you did around the bio, what I call the bionicle experiments. I don't know if that's what you call them, but, but I think they teach us a lot. So maybe you could just share that as a, as a basic grounding, and then we'll, we'll go from there. Yeah. So maybe before that, because I see myself on a video, and I look a little strange, so maybe I should say a word about that. Uh, so I turned 50 uh, about a month ago, and I went on a month-long hike, and I stopped shaving at that point, and then I grew a beard, and I kind of liked it. So, so this is uh, this is a, a part of that story. And then uh, this part is, of course, as you know, because I was badly burned uh, many years ago. I just don't have uh, I have burned I have uh, scars, so I don't have hair on this side. It's not a fashion statement where I'm trying to do half yes and half half no, but. Um, We'll see how long this, this build would last. I anyway. wondered for a moment whether it was also part of an experiment and you wanted to see who asks you and who doesn't ask you. And It, it is interesting to, to see uh, the people who come and I say and, and think it's a fashion statement. And then uh, when I tell them I was badly burned, they, uh, who, is, who is upset with themselves and who is, takes it naturally. I mean, it does create some interesting conversations. I bet it does. But, but in terms of your, your question, um, you know, when we, when we think about motivation, there's kind of big motivation, right? Um, building roads, curing cancer, big, big things. Uh, but most of life is around small motivation, right? Uh, finishing a chapter, doing a presentation, and so on. And, and we were wondering what is the, the effect of this small, small motivation? Where, where does it come from? And, and in this particular experiment, we had uh, two conditions. Uh, we had people assemble Legos into a bionicle, into a little uh, robot, fighting robot. And uh, we paid people in diminishing wage. In the first uh, condition, people came and we say, hey, would you like to build those? We'll pay you $3 for the first and $2.70 for the next and $2.40 for the next and so on and so forth, down until you decide to stop. And people said yes, and we gave them the first robot, they kept on working on it, they finished, 
Uh, we took it from them, we put it under the table, we said, would you like to build another one for 30 cents less? They said, yes, we get the next one, and so on. And really what we were trying to do is to find out at what level of payment they said no more, right? What is the minimum amount that they would be willing uh, to work? And we told everybody that when we finish the experiment, we'll disassemble all the bionicles, put them back in the boxes for the next participant. This was the what we call the meaningful condition. It's not very meaningful, but we call it the meaningful condition relative to the other condition. And in the other condition, what we did was it started the same way. We gave people a bionicle, said, would you like to build this for $3? They said yes. And when they finished, we took it back. We asked them, do you want to build another one for $2.70? If they said yes, we gave them the second one. But as they were building the second one, we were taking apart the first one. So they were seeing their work destroyed in front of their eyes. There was no lasting pleasure that they got from, you know, the, the sense that this might exist in the world for a few more moments. That's right. And, and then we, we, we broke it, we put it back in the box, and then we asked them after they finished the second one if they want to build the third one. If they said yes, we gave them the first one, the one they built, we disassembled. And basically, we just kept on exchanging those two. Now, this is not about big meaning in the sense that, you know, in the first condition they were building it, they knew it would be destroyed later. In the second condition, it, it was destroyed a little faster and in front of their eyes. And, and we found three things. The first one is people stopped much faster. Uh, we call that the Sisyphic condition. We found that people stopped much faster. The second thing is that we gave some students, some MBA students at Stanford, we described to them this experiment. And we said, we asked them to predict how many bionicles people would build in each of the two conditions. We're basically asking, can you intuit the effect of this level of meaning? And people intuited the direction. People said, oh, I think in a meaningful condition, people would build more than in the other condition. But people thought the effect would be tiny, where in fact it was very large. And this is another important thing is, yes, we do understand the importance of meaning. You ask to everybody how important is meaning, and they say, yes, it's, it's good to give meaning. But how big is the effect? The effect was about six times larger than what people predicted. So they constantly right? underestimate what meaning means to other people. That's right. In terms of their desire to work, right? So when you look at this, you say people worked for money. And they worked for meaning. But how much, how big is money and how big is meaning? And they say, money is the main thing. Meaning is going to explain a very small part of the variance. Mostly it's going to come from, from money. So, but but they, they were wrong. I mean, you know, money is still important, but meaning played a big, a big role. And, and the third thing that happened was that if you looked at the correlation between how much people naturally love Legos and how long they persisted, Right? You would expect the correlation would be positive. The more you love, right? some people love Lego, some people don't. The more you love Lego, the more you will persist. And we found that the correlation was positive in the regular condition, in the meaningful condition. But the correlation was basically zero in the Sisyphic condition. What, what does that mean? It means that as long as people were allowed to express that, that having their work not destroyed in front of their eyes, people express their love of Lego by building more for less money. But the moment something was destroyed in front of people's eyes, they were so heartbroken that the, the people who love Legos did not produce more than the people who did not love 
um, Lego, right? So, so, so it, it's kind of a good starting point to think about meaning and to say meaning is important, more than we think, and it is so easy to eliminate the joy that people can get from meaning, right? And, and sadly, we do it all the time, not, not intentionally. I don't think anybody who runs a business says, um, let's eliminate the joy from my workers' uh, life. But, but we do so many things that at the end of the day do that. I think, for example, administration is one of those things where, where you give people different tasks and bureaucracies and so on that what they do essentially is putting people in this Sisyphic mindset where they feel that they're building stuff for no good reason, that they're working for no good end. And it might be good for compliance or it might be good for legal or for all kinds of things, but it's destroying motivation to a higher degree than we think. Talk about the role of appreciation as a surrogate for meaning or as a communication of meaning. Yeah. So, so we, had, we had a related experiment like this with, with the same diminishing paid wage. People got paid less and less and less. Only this time people um, um, worked on a piece of paper. They gave a piece of paper and we said, uh, there's a lot of random letters here. There are 12 instances where you have a pair of letters next to each other. Find those 12 instances, circle them each, and we'll pay you. We'll pay you more for the first, less, 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 and you can work it until you finish and this time we had three conditions. The first condition was what we call, um, you know, the, the, the meaningful condition. People basically um, filled the paper, they wrote the name at the end, they gave it to the experimenter, the experimenter kind of scanned it from top to bottom, put it on the, said, aha, put it on the, on the next to them, um, and said, would you like to do another sheet of paper for a few cents less? And that kept on going. This was the acknowledged condition. The second condition we called the ignored condition. People came, they showed a piece of paper, they experimented, didn't look at it, didn't scan it, just took it and put it on a big pile of paper next to them. And in the third condition, people gave them the sheet of paper and immediately put it through a shredder, like destroy it immediately. And you know, if you think about the results of the Bionicle, you could say, well, you know, people in the shredder condition worked much less, people in the acknowledged condition worked much more, that's obvious, but what about the ignored condition? The ignored condition would be somewhere in the middle, somewhere between them, but where between them? Would it be like the shredder, or will it be almost as good as the acknowledge? Because after all, you didn't really destroy things in front of people's eyes, you just didn't look at it and said, aha. And the result was that this condition was almost as bad as shredding. Now, now what does it mean? It means that if you really want to demotivate your employees, you know, shredding is the right way to go. That's, that's the best way to demotivate people. Not acknowledging their effort is almost as, as bad, almost as good if you want to demotivate them, right? And if you think about this, how often do we acknowledge people? How often do we give compliments uh, to people? How often do we even say thank you? We, we, I think we treat thank yous and compliments as if like we have only 50 of them to give in our lifetime and we, we cherish each of them just not to, not to waste them. But, but simply eliminating this level of acknowledgement eliminates motivation. Now the good news in all of this is how easy it is to get people to motivate simply by looking at the sheet of paper and saying, aha, now think about what it means. It's see, I've seen your effort. I didn't say I appreciate it. Those simple things, 
create a big difference in terms of motivation. Interesting. So it's not even appreciation as much as it is acknowledgement. Yeah. It's now, of course, appreciation would be even better. Did you have an appreciation? Have you tested appreciation against acknowledgement? We haven't. We haven't. But it would. I would think that it would be more powerful. But it's amazing that even acknowledgement can get you uh, so far ahead. So a lot of what you hear with people in business sometimes is, look, this is what I pay them to do. And, and so I don't need to go above and beyond. They're, you know, I pay them well and, and they're doing their job. Um, you have a particular view, um, backed by research, of course, as all your views seem to be, on, on payment and, and the role of money in motivation. Yeah. And, and you know, of, of course we should pay people. I, I don't think we should, we should stop paying people. But, but what we should ask ourselves is, is to what extent, um, wh- what can money buy you? And um, money, I think, can get you to get people to show up at work. Um, and some of it can actually get people to really care. But when you think about the knowledge economy, when you think about people's hearts and minds, you think about dedication and so on, it turns out that money can not only not provide you that, it can, in fact, backfire. So, so consider the following case. Imagine you worked for me, and I said, Peter, what would you prefer? I can either give you another $1,000, or I can send you to a week for the North Carolina beach. What you might say is, you know, $1,000 is $1,000. I can go to a different beach and buy an iPad. If I go to the beach you're sending me, it's just not ideal. So give me the $1,000. It's a better way to um, maximize my well-being. But the question here is not just about money transfer. I'm not just trying to, to get you to maximize your life. I'm trying to get you to be more dedicated and caring about work. So let's ask a slightly different question. If I either gave you the money or I sent you to the, to the beach for a weekend, which one of them would you stay late in two weeks from now? And the answer is the beach. So what happened is that money is actually a short-term exchange. When you think about money, it's basically a very simple exchange. It's work for money. That's the exchange. We spell it out, and the framework is finished. But the framework that we actually want to create in the modern workplace is much more long-term and less restrictive. Right? We say, I want you to care about work when you're at home. I want you to think about work when you're driving. I want you to help your fellow workers, even if you're stuck on a weekend and they're stuck, they need your help on something. And that doesn't come with money because money is a tit-for-tat exchange. Where if I say, how much do you pay me for this? So, so what we need is we need an exchange that is not about short-term and it's not just about backward-looking, but it's fact it's a relationship that you build forward over a long term. So here's an example. Let's say I want to give you a a 5% salary increase. I could give you that money in a bonus. I can give you that money as an increase in your salary per month. I can give you that salary as a fund to pay for your vacation. And I could give you that money in a fund to pay for your kid's college tuition. Those are not the same thing. You could say, the best one will be the fungible one. Give it to me in a, in a monthly payment because I get this to get fastest. And 
you know, financially it's the right way to go. It turns out it's not. The, the monthly payment is perfectly fine, but very quickly you stop thinking of it as an increase in salary. You got, just got used to it and you think to yourself, you know, I'm just spending a bit more on groceries. When you get it on an annual level as a bonus, you can start spending it on other things. You basically, the money that you come doesn't belong to the same ebbs and flows of money. And all of a sudden you can permit yourself to get a new bicycle or vacation or something like that. When I give you money that is dedicated to a vacation, all of a sudden I say, I care about you relaxing. Here it is. And when I give you money that is toward your kids' college tuition, I say, I care about you in a really long term. And I care about your whole family. And that's a very different statement. So if you think just about the efficiency of money, it goes in one way. But if you think about what money says in terms of our relationship, right, that's a very different story. And companies need to think about not just about, you know, how do I pay you back for what you did for me today? But how do we get your loyalty moving forward, which is what we should really care about. And, and, and that means spending money in ways that indicate your long-term care uh, of the person, of them personally. Here's what I find so fascinating, Dan, which is that – and this goes to the predictably irrational that, – that we know we're better off with the $1,000 from an efficiency standpoint, and that's obvious if you're just looking at pure economics, not behavioral economics. And and yet, the truth coming out of these experiments is that there is so much more value in receiving, uh, uh, you know, sort of motivational payoff in other ways, and that meaning is, you know, th- this is a perfect example. Meaning is more important than just pure money coming in. And yet, to choose between the two, oftentimes we make the wrong choice. And we often don't know what it is that will actually give us pleasure. And it, and it reminds me, I, I kind of want to ask you this question, because how do we get better at making choices that trade off what we know is in our best interest for what we know will actually feel the best ultimately, which is long-term in our best interest. And I and let me tie one more thing into that just to make it complicated for you to answer, which is I love the research of, of you know, asking the executives, you know, look, having the executives look at the, the um, ex- bo- uh, experimenting with bonuses, but when it came to their own bonuses, they said, no, 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 thank you. We're not interested in experimenting with our own bonuses. We like it just like we have it. And it, it plays to the same issue for me, which is, you know, what what risks we're willing to take with our own, um, you know, with 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 ourselves as the experiment with payoff, and what risks we're willing to take that trade off, you know, what we think we want for what we actually want. Yeah. So, so one of the things you're saying is that we actually do very little experiments with uh, motivation and payoffs and and payment. Right? It's kind of shocking that um, salary is the biggest line item for a company. I can't imagine one when it's not the case. And you ask people, what do you really know? What do you really know about the relationship between how you pay people and how motivated they are? And most people have to admit almost nothing. Because, you know, you have, like, some people hire some consulting firm to tell them what other people are paying. But in terms of truly understanding the nature of motivation, uh, like, you know, Companies like Zappos and Google and P&G, everybody has their own theory 
but nobody can tell you they've tested that theory or they actually understand uh, what's going on. So it's kind of shocking how little we know about the relationship between payment and motivation and how little we invest in learning more about this. The, the, the most extreme example for this was I talked to a consulting company, a very large consulting company, about their bonuses. And I said, let, I want to, if, let me do a survey. We're not going to do experiments with bonuses. Let's do a survey to understand happiness, expectation, and so on. And what they said was, no, no, we can't let you ask people about bonuses. And I say, why? They say, it's such a miserable period in the company that we don't want people to think more about the bonuses. We want them to think less about the bonuses. And I said, look, the, the whole theory of bonuses is you want people to think about them. You want people to think about the bonus, and your theory is by thinking about the bonuses a lot, they'll work harder and be more productive. I mean, otherwise you wouldn't do it if they don't think about it. The fact that they think about the bonus and makes them miserable, doesn't it suggest that it's the wrong payoff structure? And they said, yes, 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 but we have to do it, right? By the way, consulting companies, right? People who give advice, presumably, do. <laughs> um, the, the other thing, though, is... Why are we so wrong? And, you know, when, when you ask people about themselves and you say, under what conditions, when you go to somebody's house and give them cash instead of a bottle of wine, under what conditions would you offer your significant other, you know, $50 if they did the laundry or, you know, sit your back? And, you know, pe people understand that those are not the right terms. But for some reason, when we, when we look into our own lives, we, we understand some of this. But when we look into other people's lives, we are not kind of active participants. We are observers. And, and as observers from the outside, and sometimes it also happens for our lives in the future, when you say, you know, from a distance, like, when you're in a particular situation, you, you understand how you feel in that particular situation. But when you predict from a distance your situation or you look at the lives of other people, we think much more cognitively and much less emotionally. So, you know, things like reciprocity or revenge. So, so here's an experiment in reciprocity. Very simple experiment called the trust game. Two people, different room, they don't see each other. You give player one $100 and you say, look, player one, you can either keep the $100 or you can send it to player two. If you send it to player two, the money will quadruple. It will be $400. And then player two could either walk around away with the money, in which case you get zero, or they can send you back $200. Now, what happened is that the prediction is that player two, the economic prediction is player two will walk out with all the money. If they got $400 and it's anonymous, why don't you just walk? The reality is that people send the money and people who get the money almost always send the money back. We have this need to reciprocate. I did some, I did some studies on uh, uh, people who are panhandling. And some of the most successful uh, beggars basically come to people and put their hands up to, be, to have a handshake. And they say, when somebody passes you by, they just try not to look. They try to pretend you're not there, that you're not human. But if you put their hands, it's very difficult to ignore you. They shake your hand, they look into you in the eyes, and then they have no other option but to give you money. Or, so, so, you know, we have this incredibly wonderful, by the way, usually we think about irrational as the same as bad. Irrational is not 
bad, right? Falling in love and respecting a handshake and sticking to our word. I mean, there's lots of wonderful things, being altruistic, helping each other, reciprocation. All of those things are irrational from the standard economic perspective, but they're wonderful. And we're full of those tendencies. Uh, the thing is that we don't recognize those tendencies when we're far away from it. So if you're in a particular social situation and somebody did you a favor, you feel the need to reciprocate. You understand it at that moment. But if you're far away from it, you don't understand it. So, you know, if you ask the question of how can leaders of any organization um, basically have a better insight into what drives us, you know, one thing, of course, is research. I think this is what research is supposed to do. It's supposed to give us some hints about here are the directions you're going to likely to get things wrong. Let's be careful. But, but the, so that's one approach. The second approach is to make decisions about situations only when we're experiencing them. Right? So if you say, how do I understand real motivation? I would say, try to understand it when you're on the job fully immerse into it. In the heat of the moment. That's right. So, you know, when, when you think about running, you can say, oh, it's going to be terrible. And maybe the first few minutes are terrible, but then you kind of get used to it. And you maybe enjoy the pain or the difficulty of breathing or music or whatever it is. If you want to understand the first two minutes, be in the first two minutes. If you want to understand running, you have to be in the mode of running. If you want to understand the joy of anything or the challenges of anything. You have to be in that situation. We're not just good predictors. We're in fact, we're particularly not good predictors where, where it's sort of, you know, what you're saying, which I found very much to be true in, in the advisory work that I do, which is if someone's having a hard time making a decision, they should just make a decision that is hopefully reversible in some way so they could experience it and then they could decide because they're not going to figure it out in their heads. That's right. That's right. We, we simulate in our heads different situations, uh, but, but we have a hard time simulating the emotional element in, in lots of ways, right? Which is, of course, why you know, women have multiple kids and why we keep on falling. I mean, all kinds, all kinds of things that are good, good and bad. You know, as somebody who had lots of pain, and you say, what do I remember from my three years in hospital? I remember being in a lot of pain. I remember some of it, but it's at a descriptive level. And if you ask, like, at what intensity do I really remember it? And at what intensity can I actually make reasonable decisions about pain? I would say I can't. I really can't. To, to truly make those decisions, I will have to experience the pain again. I remember it was terrible, right? So I remember some elements about it. But thankfully, uh, most of the quality, most of the feeling of the emotion is, is gone. And, and you just can't. You can't simulate it no matter how much you try. So, so when you try to say, how much do I care? I mean, anything that has to do with, like, we can simulate how much do I like $100. So what else can I buy with $100? That I can always do. But to simulate joy, commitment, feeling of improvement, a sense of meaning, you can't do it without feeling that sense. Dan, thank you so much. The book is Pay Off, The Hidden Logic That Shapes Our Motivations. Um, it, all of Dan Ariely's books are incredible and fun to read and interesting, and I urge you to go out and get them. Dan, I so appreciate you being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. My pleasure, and looking forward to next time. 
hope you enjoyed this episode of the Bregman Leadership Podcast. If you did, it would really help us if you subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. A common problem that I see in companies is a lot of busyness, a lot of hard work that fails to move the organization as a whole forward. That's the problem that we solve with our Big Arrow process. For more information about that or to access all of my articles, videos, and podcasts, visit peterbregman.com. Thank you, Claire Marshall, for producing this episode, and thank you for listening.